War and Peace, Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Six. Recording for LibriVox.org by Eva Harnick. Toward four o'clock in the afternoon, Murat's troops were entering Moscow. In front rode a detachment of Württemberg hussars, and behind them rode the King of Naples himself, accompanied by a numerous suite. About the middle of the Arbat Street, near the Church of the Miraculous Icon of St. Nicholas, Murat halted to await news from the advanced detachment as to the condition in which they had found the citadel Le Kremlin. Around Murat gathered a group of those who had remained in Moscow. They all stared in timid bewilderment at the strange, long-haired commander dressed up in feathers and gold. Is that their Tsar himself? He's not bad, low voices could be heard saying. An interpreter rode up to the group. Take off your cap, your caps. These words went from one to another in the crowd. The interpreter addressed an old porter and asked if it was far to the Kremlin. The porter, listening in perplexity to the unfamiliar Polish accent and not realizing that the interpreter was speaking Russian, did not understand what was being said to him and slipped behind the others. Murat approached the interpreter and told him to ask where the Russian army was. One of the Russians understood what was asked, and several voices at once began answering the interpreter. A French officer, returning from the advanced detachment, rode up to Murat and reported that the gates of the citadel had been barricaded and that there was probably an ambuscade there. Good, said Murat, and turning to one of the gentlemen in his suite, ordered four light guns to be moved forward to fire at the gates. The guns emerged at a trot from the column following Murat and advanced up the Arbet. When they reached the end of the Vozdvizhenska street, they halted and drew in the square. Several French officers superintended the placing of the guns and looked at the Kremlin through field glasses. The bells in the Kremlin were ringing for vespers, and this sound troubled the French. They imagined it to be a call to arms. A few infantrymen ran to the Kutafiev gate. Beams and wooden screens had been put there, and two musket shots rang out from under the gate as soon as an officer and man began to run toward it. A general, who was standing by the guns, shouted some words of command to the officer, and the latter ran back again with his man. The sound of three more shots came from the gate. One shot struck a French soldier's foot 
and from behind the screens came the strange sound of a few voices shouting. Instantly, as at a word of command, the expression of cheerful serenity on the faces of the French general, officers and men changed to one of determined, concentrated readiness for strife and suffering. To all of them, from the marshal to the least soldier, that place was not the Vozdvizenska, Mokhavaya or Kutafiev Street, nor the Troitsa Gate, places familiar in Moscow, but a new battlefield which would probably prove sanguinary. And all made ready for that battle. The cries from the gates ceased. The guns were advanced, the artillerymen blew the ash off their linstocks, and an officer gave the word, Fire! This was followed by two whistling sounds of canister shot, one after another. The shot rattled against the stone of the gate and upon the wooden beams and screens, and two wavering clouds of smoke rose over the square. A few instants after the echo of the reports resounding over the stone-built Kremlin had died away, the French heard a strange sound above their head. Thousands of crows rose above the walls and circled in the air, cawing and noisily flapping their wings. Together with that sound came a solitary human cry from the gateway, and amid the smoke appeared the figure of a bareheaded man in a peasant's coat. He grasped a musket and took aim at the French. Fire, repeated the officer once more, and the reports of a musket and of two cannon shots were heard simultaneously. The gate was again hidden by smoke. Nothing more stirred behind the screens, and the French infantry soldiers and officers advanced to the gate. In the gateway lay three wounded and four dead. Two men in peasant coats ran away at the foot of the wall towards the Znamenka. Clear that away, said the officer, pointing to the beams and the corpses, and the French soldiers, after dispatching the wounded, threw the corpses over the parapet. Who these men were, nobody knew. Clear that away, was all that was said of them, and they were thrown over the parapet and removed later on, that they may not stink. Tears alone dedicates a few eloquent lines to their memory. These wretches had occupied the sacred citadel, having supplied themselves with guns from the arsenal, and fired the wretches at the French. Some of them were sabred, and the Kremlin was purged of their presence. Murat was informed that the way had been cleared. The French entered the gates and began pitching their camp in the Senate Square. Out of the windows of the Senate House, the soldiers threw chairs into the square for fuel and kindled fires there. Other detachments passed through the Kremlin and encamped along the Morosaika, the Lubyanka, and Pokrovka streets. Others quartered themselves along the Vozdvizhenka, 
the Nikolsky and the Tverskoy streets. No masters of the houses being found anywhere, the French were not billeted on the inhabitants as is usual in towns, but lived in it as in a camp. Though tattered, hungry, worn out, and reduced to a third of their original number, the French entered Moscow in good marching order. It was a weary and famished, but still a fighting and menacing army. But it remained an army only until its soldiers had dispersed into their different lodgings. As soon as the men of the various regiments began to disperse among the wealthy and deserted houses, the army was lost forever, and there came into being something nondescript, neither citizens nor soldiers, but what are known as marauders. When five weeks later these same men left Moscow, they no longer formed an army. They were a mob of marauders, each carrying a quantity of articles which seemed to him valuable or useful. The aim of each man when he left Moscow was no longer as it had been to conquer, but merely to keep what he had acquired. Like a monkey which puts its paw into the narrow neck of a jug and having seized a handful of nuts will not open its fist for fear of losing what it holds and therefore perishes, the French when they left Moscow had inevitably to perish because they carried their loot with them yet to abandon what they had stolen was as impossible for them as it is for the monkey to open its paw and let go of its nuts. Ten minutes after each regiment had entered the Moscow district, not a soldier or officer was left. Men in military uniforms and hessian boots could be seen through the windows, laughing and walking through the rooms. In cellars and storerooms similar men were busy among the provisions, and in the yards unlocking or breaking open coach house and stable doors, lighting fires in kitchens and kneading and baking bread with rolled up sleeves and cooking, or frightening, amusing, or caressing women and children. There were many such men, both in the shops and houses, but there was no army. Order after order was issued by the French commanders that day, forbidding the men to disperse about the town, sternly forbidding any violence to the inhabitants or any looting, and announcing a roll call for that very evening. But despite all these measures, the men who had till then constituted an army, flowed all over the wealthy deserted city with its comforts and plentiful supplies. As a hungry herd of cattle keeps well together when crossing a barren field, but gets out of hand and at once disperses uncontrollably as soon as it reaches rich pastures, so did the army disperse all over the wealthy city. 
No residents were left in Moscow, and the soldiers, like water percolating through sand, spread irresistibly through the city in all directions from the Kremlin into which they had first marched. The cavalry, on entering a merchant's house that had been abandoned and finding their stabling more than sufficient for their horses, went on all the same to the next house, which seemed to them better. Many of them appropriated several houses, chalked their names on them, and quarreled and even fought with other companies for them. Before they had had time to secure quarters, the soldiers ran out into the streets to see the city, and hearing that everything had been abandoned, rushed to places where valuables were to be had for the taking. The officers followed to check the soldiers and were involuntarily drawn into doing the same. In carriage row, Carriages had been left in the shops, and generals flocked there to select caleches and coaches for themselves. The few inhabitants who had remained invited commanding officers to their houses, hoping thereby to secure themselves from being plundered. There were masses of wealth, and there seemed no end to it. All around the quarters occupied by the French were other regions still unexplored and unoccupied where they thought yet greater riches might be found. And Moscow engulfed the army ever deeper and deeper. When water is spilled on dry ground, both the dry ground and the water disappear and mud results. And in the same way, the entry of the famished army into the rich and deserted city resulted in fires and looting and the destruction of both the army and the wealthy city. The French attributed the fire of Moscow o patriotism feroz the Rostopchin. Asterisk Rostopchin's ferocious patriotism, the Russians to the barbarity of the French. In reality, however, it was not and could not be possible to explain the burning of Moscow by making any individual or any group of people responsible for it. Moscow was burned because it found itself in a position in which any town built of wood was bound to burn quite apart from whether it had or had not a hundred and thirty inferior fire engines. Deserted Moscow had to burn as inevitably as a heap of shavings has to burn on which sparks continually fall for several days. A town built of wood where scarcely a day passes without conflagrations, when the house owners are in residence and the police force is present, cannot help burning when its inhabitants have left it and it is occupied by soldiers who smoke pipes, make campfires of the Senate chairs in the Senate square and cook themselves meals twice a day. In peacetime, it is only necessary 
to billet troops in the villages of any district, and the number of fires in that district immediately increases. How much then must the probability of fire be increased in an abandoned wooden town where foreign troops are quartered? Le patriotism feroce de Rostopchin and the barbarity of the French were not to blame in the matter. Moscow was set on fire by the soldiers' pipes, kitchens and campfires, and by the carelessness of enemy soldiers occupying houses they did not own. Even if there was any arson, which is very doubtful, for no one had any reason to burn the houses, in any case a troublesome and dangerous thing to do, arson cannot be regarded as the cause, for the same thing would have happened without any incendiarism. However tempting it might be for the French to blame Rostopchin's ferocity and for Russians to blame the scoundrel Bonaparte or later on to place a heroic torch in the hands of their own people, it is impossible not to see that there could be no such direct cause of the fire, for Moscow had to burn, as every village, factory or house must burn, which is left by its owners, and in which strangers are allowed to live and cook their porridge. Moscow was burned by its inhabitants, it is true, but by those who had abandoned it, and not by those who remained in it. Moscow, when occupied by the enemy, did not remain intact like Berlin, Vienna and other towns simply because its inhabitants abandoned it and did not welcome the French with bread and salt nor bring them the keys of the city. End of chapter 26 Recording by Eva Harnick, Pontevedra, Florida